Welcome everybody, you're listening to The Breakfast Show on Faith FM 87.6, 87.8 or 88 right across Australia, right across the Faith FM network wherever you are. Positively different radio in the morning, you're with the double L team, Lyle and Lawson. Lawson, how are you this morning? I'm great. You're great? Well, kind of. It's kind of like I'm, I'm feeling a bit bittersweet. Okay. Because I spent a lot of money. On a motorbike? No, no, no. I bought a new computer. Oh, ooh. Yeah, ooh, so ooh, I bought ooh, it. Look at that. that. Wow, it's shiny. Yeah, shiny and brand new. I bought like the, the new the new MacBook Air. Uh-huh. So my computer could run like two tabs on Google and then it would like crash. <laughs> so, uh, I've got like an, an older Mac and, and it was just getting worse and worse and worse. And it's particularly as they like keep updating the operating system, um, like it's just getting slower and slower. So yeah, yesterday I tried to weasel my way out of buying a new computer because I was like, oh, there's spare computers at work. But then all of them like, you know, they're spare computers for a reason. And that's because they're not 100% functioning in the best <laughs> way. And I was like... Fine, I'll buy it. You know, I've got, a, I've got a laptop here that was probably five years old when it was bought because it was bought for like $400. Oh, epic. Yes. It's a, what is I don't even know what it is. It's HP. a HP. It's a HP. <laughs> okay, it's a HP. And you know how many tabs I have open on this? How like, many? And I never shut this thing off or restart it? How many? 28. Wow. Well, my MacBook was, <laughs> yeah. was, was definitely on the way Go the $400 HP. <laughs> but no, it's good. I honestly, oh, I don't want to sound like an Apple salesman, but I got so much flack from my dad when I got home last night and told him because like consistently growing up, I was like, Apple's are the worst. I will never buy a new one. They are terrible. But this is like the first generation of them that's actually worth the money because it made their own processor. But anyways, I digress. <laughs> you <I've>, do digress. <laughs> I made a purchase yesterday and I'm, and I'm pretty happy with it. I can open more than two tabs on Google. So that's very helpful. He's just, he's just uh, peaking on dopamine right now. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. We need to uh, head on with our show and talk about positively different positively news. different news. So we are still in the midst of fire season in the United States. You, you know, specifically in California, they're fighting fires over there. And one of the areas in which they're um, particularly worried about is the um, Sequoia National Park, which is what, basically the home to the biggest trees in the world. The biggest remaining t- trees in the world. Th- th- yeah, that's right. The biggest living home trees. of the biggest. The home of the biggest trees in the world is Tasmania. Yeah, but actually, no. Let me rephrase that: the tallest trees. But we yeah. just cut them all down. No, this is vo- the most voluminous trees. Yes. So these are like these things are massively wide. They are. Like you know, you see some of the trees in Australia. You can go to like um, you know, into Hamilton and Newcastle, and you see like I don't know what they're called, but the trees and they have like lots of roots that go everywhere that you climb on top of. But anyways, Morton Bay figs. Yeah, those things, and they're like, oh yeah, that's pretty big. And then you look at this, and it's like. Miniature. Ten times bigger, like just huge. They're not just big, they're tall. They're tall, they're wide. Like you could live, you could make a house in one of these things. Yes. You could carve the bottom out. Well, maybe that would ruin the structural integrity of the tree and it'd fall on you. But I'm sure you could in some way create... There would be a way. There would be a way. Create a literal tree house. That's how massive these things are. On the inside. Yeah, that's right. Um, But so, you know... There's one of these trees that actually has a road going through the middle of it. That is and amazing. it's still alive. 
That's incredible. Yes. This is a road, you drive car, car right <laughs> in the middle of the tree. Dude, that's awesome. Hey, uh, what I read this morning doesn't say anything about that, but what it does say is they are wrapping all these trees in um, fire retardant blankets so that once the fire season comes, well, because they're facing it at the moment, their last big fire was on the 9th of September, so just a couple <laughs> weeks ago, um, that burned like 25,000 hectares. It started, uh, sorry, 25,000 acres. It started from like a lightning strike. And then just, you know, blew on from there. So, you know, they're in the midst of summer. It's yep. incredibly dry. We know all about it in this part of the world. We, so uh, we, they have the Californians have our sympathy. They do. They definitely do. But yeah, in terms of these trees, they're like, okay, you know, if we backburn an area or whatever, like it's fine, but we don't want to lose the biggest trees in the world. So they're wrapping them in blankets, you know, doing what they can to be able to protect them. Um, and it was really interesting because they came across another story about firefighting, but from another part of the world across the Atlantic over in Ireland. Who would ever thought we had a story about wrapping trees in blankets in summer? Well, we talked about how they wrap snowy mountains in blankets a couple of days ago. You blankets are the thing Blankets, are, No, but now, check this out. So in Ireland, they're going a different way about firefighting. You wouldn't necessarily think that firefighting would be a massive problem in Ireland, you know, considering it's in the United Kingdom and they get yeah, lots of really rain. it's green and it's wet. All the time. But recently in Ireland, close to, you know, Ireland's fair capital, they had a, a big fire happen, you know, just out in, in the in the woods, in the forest, and a bunch of black smoke blew over the town, and they were like, okay, we need to fix our problem. You know, we've got so much, like, our, our, our areas, it's so green, it's so luscious, we need to come up with a solution to be able to, you know, just reduce the amount of fuel that a potential fire could have. So they employed a crack team of old island goats that were sponsored by the government <laughs> to be put all over the uh, the wild foresty areas of Ireland to eat and eat yeah. that's that's not a bad job I, I wouldn't mind being employed to to eat. eat that's that's dude that's what they do and apparently they're doing a fantastic job getting around really thinning out you know the local forests and whatnot um and, and yeah these goats are really cute too they're the ones that have massive big horns that like wrap around the old they're like have long fur and big horns they're called old irish goats which are actually interestingly they're like a naturally introduced species a nat- a, what's a, what do you mean a naturally introduced apparently they migrated by themselves to okay. ireland they swam they some <laughs> someone got them over there yeah like, i reckon yeah. i reckon they were unnaturally introduced that, but anyway well, been there, let's just say they've been there for a long time a little bit like dingoes right yeah, you know, we talk about we we look at dingoes as being a native species to Australia, but it's not. Mm. It's a feral invasive species, mm-hmm. but L- not in the same way as a cat. Lyle's Lyle's uh, Lyle's invasive species radar is going off. So so what's the solution yes. here? But these guys are actually contributing to the environment. They are. They're helping. They, goats them. are eating machines. They will eat anything and everything. Believe me, we used to have when we were in Tasmania, we had a gully that mm-hmm. like a big gully, like mm-hmm. hundred foot deep gully. And it was full of blackberries because blackberries just go nuts in Tasmania. Yeah. And the black it was just like solid blackberries, just like straight across the top of it kind of mm. blackberries. And so we just fenced it off and put goats in there. Yeah. Problem solved. <clears throat> Gave it a year or two. They ate those blackberries down until those blackberries died. They literally died because they had <laughs> no leaves left. Sometimes we had to go and rescue the goats because they would um, fall into the blackberries and end up feet up in oh. the middle of the blackberries and couldn't get back out again. So you have to... Have to uh, cut your way in there and drag them mm. back out again. They'd be laying upside down, bleeding. 
But yeah, oh, that's tough. Yeah, it was a bit rough. A bit rough. Sometimes but they, they were a little just, bit ill-advised in where they went with their... But they just got up and kept eating. Oh, they love blackberries. It's like their favourite thing. They just <laughs> love it. There's, there's like grass there as well. It's like, who would eat grass? We have blackberries to eat. <laughs> that's Completely so awesome. spurned the grass. Just ate all the blackberries. Well, in these areas, like the local council have said, all of their, you know, agricultural areas and all the place where they're farming, like they're all fenced off. So they could just throw these things in the wild and have no risk of them, you know, overrunning farms or whatever. And they're just, they're doing a fantastic job. There you go. And then, you know, once, if they feel like they've done too good of a job, they can just go and round them up and chuck them in the truck. And eat them. (laughs) As you do. Well, as they would do. (laughs) Yeah, interesting, interesting. Hey, another story coming out of the EU, which I I thought was really interesting, just in in the area of of market competitiveness and, and regulation by the government. Dude, the EU, the entire EU, wants to put a law in where every single phone will have the same charger. This is genius. (laughs) This is absolute genius. They've been talking about this in the EU for a while. Yes. And it's about time that somebody did this because it's just ridiculous. They, you know, people just like to sell charges, which is why they make buckets of money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Well, I think individual charges. Well, I think like particularly because Apple has such a big market share and then they have a different charger from most other phone companies that it's like, there's that that means that there's like divide and also what they're really trying to tackle is e-waste. Like there is just right. so much waste and oh there are so many stories coming out about this now about the amount of e-waste like hundreds and thousands of tons. It's pretty toxic stuff. And it's it's terrible. All that lithium and so forth. Yeah, so they are like trying to legislate. They're trying to put in legislation by 2022 and, and enforce that every company, you know, every phone manufacturer has the same charges so that they can, you know, be used between and recycled. Uh, which is which is interesting because that means that essentially the main person who they're going up against is Apple. Yes, and you have to say, okay, the most expensive company in the world. Versus the entire European Union. Who will win? Who wins? Yeah, well, Apple might be bigger than a whole, have it run a bigger economy than a whole bunch of those countries. Yeah. But when you combine them all together, I think they're bigger than Apple. I think so too. And the other thing is like Apple in most of its products have been moving over to USB-C, which is what most phones run, because Lightning is becoming more and more outdated in terms of its speed. So it's like, you know. Maybe they'll just bite the bullet and do it, or maybe they'll fight it. They're like, no, we've brought out lightning well, the too. Thing is, and- the thing is, the thing is, the EU is a legislative body, whereas the whereas Apple is a business. They they are not a legislative body. They have yeah. to do what they're told. Or maybe they could just leave. They could. That would be interesting. They're just like Europeans. You're not allowed to have iPhones anymore. Goodbye. <laughs> they just leave, dude. <laughs> I'm predicting. They won't. Yeah, probably not. That's a huge piece of the market right there. So I guess we'll see how that unfolds in the future. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. Yes, here's a great idea. Raphael's uh, just texted through with this one. Fire blankets, not a bad idea. Imagine using these blankets for houses in high fire risk areas. The insurance companies would save a fortune. It Mm. could be made compulsory as water tanks have been made for new houses. Mm. It's an interesting thought. Yeah. If you just owned a bunch of fire blankets, have them stacked up somewhere, when there's a fire risk, you run out and just cover your house in blankets. Well, we we covered a story, I believe it was either 
towards the beginning of this year or in like last year, we covered about like this startup that had been made by a 17 year old kid from California where it's like, you know, it senses, it's like this box that senses heat. And when it, it senses heat, it splay, sprays out like this automatically sprays out like this fire retardant spray that like takes out the fire. Dude, there's so many different solutions that people there are is. coming up with. There is. Good All stuff. right. <clears throat> In the United States, in the education system in the United States, mm-hmm. in the last 12 months, 1.4 million students have been removed from the public school system and moved over to private schools or charter schools. Why is that? That's a massive, massive difference. Well, the reason, the reason is because if you look at a private school or a private a private charter school and a private charter school is basically a public school that is run by the local community mm. so it's not run by the public school system we don't have these in australia mm-hmm. it's run by the local community so the local community gets to, to to decide on the curriculum and what is taught in the school etc 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 rather than just being you know the state government or whatever that uh, sets the curriculum and so basically it operates like a private school. And what it is, is you've got parents who are looking for an educational system that hasn't woked itself into foolishness. Yeah, wow. Well. You know, people aren't interested in, you know, woke maths. They're interested <laughs> in one plus one equals two. <laughs> in mathematics. They are not interested in schools that teach ideology. They're interested in schools that mm. educate. Mm. And you've had this massive... Uh, swing, you know, ideological swing in the education system in the United States and parents are acting on it and you can see what is that 1.4 million students pulled out mm. of public school system. That's going to create a big, big impact and that should be a wake-up call uh, to the education system over there. Um, on top of that, uh, you've got homeschooling, which, is, which has... There is about 5 million students that have moved across into homeschooling. So put, put wow. About one, okay. okay that's, that is massive. That is huge. That is a massive, massive number. And that's not distance education. Mm. That's actual homeschooling. Yeah, wow. That's actually, no, we are not connected to a major school anywhere. We are actually homeschooling. Mm. Because, you know, when they first did it, they thought, well, you know, we're doing this research during COVID. And, of course, a lot of kids are going to be doing distance ed. Uh, because the entire public school system uh, during COVID, you know, um, kind of went into lockdown at various periods. Mm. And so uh, they went into distance ed uh, during those periods. But this is not distance ed. Mm. That's actual homeschooling. Yeah, wow. So that amounts, that, that, that comes down to about, you know, six and a half million students that have been pulled out of uh, the uh, public school system. Wow. That's that's going to have a big impact in the United States, and it goes to show. It gives me courage, actually, because you know when you see the the just absolute ridiculousness of what is going on in the education system in the United States, and I've got to say that Australia is not far behind it in a lot of our schools. Then it is good to see that parents are actually st- standing up and doing something about it. I think the interesting thing here, and I think the thing to really rejoice over, is that this proves that parents. Well, a lot of them, at least six million of them, want to parent. Yes, which yes, is, this which, is a positively different news story. It really is, like because yes. we've been talking about like, oh, we're gonna, you know, China versus the United States in, on both sides, even though they're taking very different routes. Both of them want to parent your kids. That's right. They they have this ins, uh, insatiable need 
to instill in children uh, a, an ideology, a yes. culture, whatever it is. Yes. Um, and in the United States, like these people are like, well, no, we're not. We want to be the primary influence in our children's life yeah. rather than the government or the, you know, whatever other ideology out there is that is out there. That's right. That's epic. That's so good. Ah, right. It is a fantastic story. Moving across to the UK, we have uh, the High Court has upheld the legal right to discriminate against the disabled by legally taking their life. Okay. So this is pretty heavy legislation. Well, not legislation, but a pretty heavy court case. Um, This case was brought to the High Court by a uh, disabilities campaigner by the name of Mm. Heidi Crowther. And uh, she stated after the case was lost in court that William Wilberforce did not give up on fighting slavery and neither will she. Wow. And, of course, if you know the story of William Wilberforce, there is a movie out that uh, does cover a lot of his life. He never gave up stopping fighting slavery because he continued to push and continued to say, even when the ideology of the time was very much against what he was saying, until public opinion began eventually to turn very, very slowly in his favour. He never, ever gave up saying that slavery was immoral. And this particular lady, Heidi Crowther, is saying that discrimination against the disabled is morally wrong. So how has this taken place, this discrimination? Okay, so this is... So basically what she says is this. Um, and this is a person, Heidi Crowther, is a person who is 26 years old. She has Down syndrome. She's newly married. Um, and she states that her human rights as a person are equal to any other person's human rights once she is born, mm-hmm. she can she has all the same human rights, mm-hmm. and she can function in society with those rights. But before she is born, she doesn't have the same human rights wow. as other people. So, for instance, in the United States, you can't have an abortion after twenty four weeks unless you're Downs. Mm. And but if you're Downs, then you have no human rights until you're born. Wow! And she's like, this is discrimination. This is massive discrimination. She says, I feel discriminated against by this decision. Mm. I self-identify as a discriminated person. And if you feel discriminated against in today's world, you are discriminated against. It's that simple. Yeah. And so... But she actually has, you know... Yeah, I know you're saying is. facetiously, she but she actually has grounds well, she said to that make that claim. I was, I was <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're quoting her. Yeah. So this will now go to the uh, Court of Appeal. Um and this, uh, of course, this ruling went through last Thursday, and so she's now coming out and making some statements in relationship to this. And it's it's good to see that this is being led by a person who actually suffers from this particular disability. Uh, you know, I do sympathise with parents who are struggling with, you know, what what do we do? The reality is there are a lot of parents who would actually do a very good job of raising a Downs child. Yeah. I, I, but who choose not to because... They don't want to. Simultaneously, so I personally know people who have a Down syndrome child. Um, the she, I think she's nine years old now, uh, between six and nine years old, either one of those ages. And they were heavily advised by the. They're you know a Christian couple, and they kind of hold similar convictions to us about abortion and different things. Um, and they were heavily advised by the hospital, like post you know all these th- you know twenty four weeks post like like right towards the end of the term. Like, oh, hey, your child has Down syndrome. Like, you know, 
you're allowed to get an abortion. We think you should do it. Like the the hospital was like putting pressure on them. Like, hey, you have the opportunity to do this. You should because most people are doing it. And not only were these people really offended by that, but they really fought. And this child is born and it's living a fantastic life today. And she's growing up and she's happy. And it's like, it's amazing. Yes. But it's, it's it, you know, can we just let this happen rather than discriminating against it? It's tough, dude. It is. It is a very tough situation. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. Well, joining us on the phone this morning is Burrand Neustraten. Burrand is our local expert on uh, everything to do with the book of Genesis. Burrand, welcome to the show. Hi, uh, good morning. Uh, thank you, uh, Lyle. We always look forward to this interview. It is very different from all of our other interviews, but we do enjoy it each time it comes around, each month when it comes around. Baron, what are we talking about today from the book of Genesis? Yeah, we're looking, Lyle, at the 25th chapter there, which is an, an amazing account, very pivotal to understand uh, so much of the historical realities that are presented in the Old Testament and maybe even are carried through till today. And that is, of course, the uh, to begin with, the remarriage of Abram. Uh, Sarah had died at the age of 127. Abram was 137 years old because he was 10 years older than her. Three years later, his son uh, Isaac uh, married, of course, uh, Rebecca. And, uh, yeah, the interesting thing is that he remarried. And this is the big thing for a man who was so concerned that he might have been too old to produce children, he had six sons by his second wife. That's not a bad effort for somebody who's in their 140s to have, go ahead 40s. and have yes. six sons. Yes, yes. That's fascinating, isn't it? And the descendancy of the... That's the other interesting aspect. When you look into the descendancy... We can't place them all, but part of the, one of the sons was called Midian. From there we get the Midianites. And they had a fair interaction, of course, with Israel normally on a negative footing. Uh, in fact, the history was negative, although Moses, when he married, uh, his father-in-law was a Midianite, and of course she was a, a Midianite, although she was called the Cushite because she had a dark complexion, but she was a Midianite as well. So there were initially uh, friendly overtones, but uh, that must have deteriorated later as they came out of Egypt and uh, the Midianites saw them as, as enemies. It's an interesting story because, you know, you look at Jethro and the Bible describes him as a priest of God. He was indeed, yes, that's right. So amongst the Midianites, you know, by the time the you know Moses comes up to the borders of the Promised Land, they are very steeped in idolatry, but clearly not everyone was. No, not that is correct. So pockets of the... Of, of a, yeah, if you look at the same at Melchizedek, who was an Amorite, uh, God told Abram he couldn't possess the land himself. Uh, there would... Uh, you know, there was another 400 years to go. It's interesting, though, that, uh, that that he was an Amorite king of the city of Salem, which later became Jerusalem. It's fascinating that there were still pockets of worship of the true God, 
amongst the people that were overall very uh, very pagan in their in their systems and beliefs. And then we have the uh, story of Balaam as well, who comes from Mesopotamia. He yes. comes from a long way away, and so yeah, interesting. Yeah, fascinating character, isn't it? A, a prophet you could buy, but uh, yeah. Uh, one of the few people, well, the only one who had a donkey speak to him. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> indeed. And it sort of gives you that, you know, we, we see that you know Noah and his sons they come out of the ark and they begin to spread around the world. We sometimes yeah. just assume that they immediately, you know, their descendants immediately all just descended uh, straight into idolatry, and the knowledge of God only existed in Abraham and didn't exist anywhere else, and only existed with God's people, being the Israelite people and the Jewish people, and that was the only place that it was preserved. But when you look at the biblical evidence, you find that there were, you know, as yeah. as the descendants of Noah spread, the knowledge of God spread with them, and it didn't truly disappear for probably hundreds if not thousands of years amongst many of these different people groups. Yeah, heaven only knows, of course, how many people still were adherents to the true God. We don't really know. Mm. Okay, mm. So, and we often we often don't uh, really stop and think much about Keturah. We talk about Abraham yeah. and, and Sarah, and we you know talk about Sarah as being Abraham's wife, but Keturah played a very, very significant role in Abraham's life. And when you look at the descendants that uh, Abraham has by Keturah, mm. you know, we find once again, yeah, Abraham is the is the father of pretty much everybody in the Middle East. Correct. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Yeah, they're all Semites. Semites. And uh, so that's very fascinating. What is fascinating is that, that and then it is recorded here, of course, in the 25th chapter, that Abram, he gave gifts to the sons of his uh, concubines. Now, uh, Keturah is then referred to here as a concubine, but see, the marriage was after Sarah had died, most likely. But what is fascinating is that Abram gave all that he had to Isaac. And uh, so, because Isaac was the, was obviously the one who had, or the, the main person of the inheritance. But Abram uh, gave gifts to his sons of the concubines, so that would have been Hagar and uh, and Keturah, uh, while he was still living. And he sent them, and this is fascinating now, Allow, he sent them eastwards. He sent them away from Isaac um, to a country to the east, east and actually, if you look, this, uh, you know, southeast. And that is the amazing part. He made provisions before he died, that there would be a physical separation between them. You know, history is replete with examples of great men who have ruled at various times and on you know, <coughs> on their death there becomes a struggle amongst the family to yeah. you know, to be the next great ruler and they all fight amongst each other. Abraham's yeah. avoiding this kind of conflict, isn't he? Correct. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. He did so with Ismail, and uh, he uh, he did it again with the other six sons. And it doesn't stop them from succeeding in becoming great rulers, because obviously Ishmael and Midian uh, went on to found you know great nations that yeah, uh, you know, yeah. I mean the Ishmaelites still existed today as the as the Arabs. Correct, uh, Ishmael. Twelve princes came from him, and uh, the, numerically speaking, uh, they were quite uh, you know superior to the descendancy numerically to the descendancy of Abraham, no question about it. Mm. But 
the, the history reverberates the, the animosity and the tension, and which is still true today. If you look at today's Israel and the, the Arab nations, it's just fascinating that that is still prevailing in a way, isn't it? Yes. It's sort of when you see that uh, that Midian was a descendant of Abraham, I guess it explains one of the reasons why, you know, Moses did not initially want to, you know, be in conflict with some of these nations. He, you know, he proposed, look, we'll march through. We won't turn to the left hand or to the right. We will purchase yeah. supplies from you as we go through. But, you know, these nations on the uh, eastern side of the Jordan were not going to have it. Yeah, so certainly the Ammonites and the Moabites and the Edomites were exempted from any aggression by the approaching people of Israel as they approached the Promised Land this time from the eastern side. God did not want a conflict because they were family. Mm. Yeah. Okay, so we move on in the chapter and we find that Abraham dies. How old is Abraham when he dies? 175. Okay, so he's 175. How does this compare to, you know, other ages at this particular time? Was this an exceptional age or were, you know, his father, his grandfather, etc., were they living long ages as well? Yeah, Sarah was just over 200 years. Uh, Isaac, his son, actually lived to the ripe old age of 180. So uh, it was a pretty average age. It was not something exceptional. It's kind of hard for us to imagine these days, isn't it? You know, being born way back in the 1800s and, you know, still having yeah. a family and still having children at... Uh, at, at, at Amazing. Age. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and, you know, at 175, not only does he have, you know, all of these sons, but he has the opportunity to raise these sons and to see them grow yeah. to adulthood. That's right, yeah. Okay, so, it's quite incredible, yeah. Now, Abraham, uh, of course, you know, when the Bible says he gives gifts... Uh, to his other sons, he sends his other sons away, but Isaac gets all that he has. I think the you know those gifts that would have been given to his other sons would have been very significant. Uh, but Isaac, when the Bible says he gets all that Abraham has, I'm thinking that refers to the promise through the the, uh, yeah. the birthright. You're so right. You see, what happens really is that the, the, the one that the oldest, who is then the main inheritor, gets the succession to the official authority of the father that will pass it on. It's the inheritance of a double portion with, of property, so that's also significant. There is certainly the, the privilege of becoming the, the family priest that was invested upon that person as well, the, the, the son that was the oldest. And uh, again, as you say, the promises, the succession to the promise of the early, uh, the earthly Canaan, and the other covenant blessings came came with it in its trail. And the the honor, and this is a very significant consideration too, the honor of being the progenitor of the promised seed, which is uh, ultimately, of course, the Messiah to come. Indeed. Now, we find as we look at this promise of the Messiah to come that Isaac, of course, is a child of that promise because he is there by the direct intervention of God. And yeah. then we have this situation where Isaac is, is, is now married. We're moving on. Abraham, you know, passes away and so forth. But yeah. Isaac wants to have children as well. He needs to have children for this promise to be fulfilled yeah. through Abraham. And he's struggling as well. Yeah, yeah, there's some 20 years that go by 
before there are is any offspring, and so he made it in a subject, a matter of prayer, and God listened to him. So at the age of uh, sixty, they are born to him the uh, the two boys, uh, Jacob and Esau. So he has twins, yeah. and these are the only children that Isaac has. Uh, yes. Okay, so he has these two twin boys, and the circumstances of their birth are most unusual. Uh, there is a prophecy that is given, and then it's kind of interesting how they come out of the womb. Tell us, tell us about that. Yeah, <laughs> that is where Jacob certainly gets his name. Um, the, the, the interesting thing about Esau, he had excessive growth of hair, and that is what his name denotes, that they're hairy. And so that is a condition known medically as hypertrichosis, and uh, that was already noticeable at his birth. Uh, and the, uh, and the, the, the word Jacob, it really means uh, he grasped the heel, or it has also a negative connotation of he deceived. And that was almost prophetic, isn't it, to receive that name? Because he was... He was, he, yeah, there was uh, a streak in Jacob uh, that he uh, he took matters in his own hands, didn't he, particularly when he pertained to the birthright. So he did deserve the name, even though kindly was changed to Israel as he returned, of course, from uh, from the north, from Haran, back to Beersheba. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Has that meeting with Jesus and has that conversion experience there? And yes, 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 a very interesting story. But that's what his name means. Yaakov is, is just that. He grasps the heel or he deceives. Okay, the heel grasper, yeah. where does that come from in this birth story? Because this is kind of unusual how they come out of the womb. Well, that's the interesting thing. The, 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 the 25th chapter records the, the incident that uh, Rebecca felt that the two babies, the two boys in the womb are already having a, well, some some movements there that concerned her. They struggled together within her already before they were born. And uh, and she inquired why, why it was like this. The Bible says she inquired of the Lord, but it doesn't say in what manner this found place. Uh, to whom was the inquiry made, well, to the Lord, was there an intermediate that we don't know. The the record says that the Lord speaks to her, uh, being an angel or someone else, we don't know. But the notion is this, two nations are in your womb, two people shall be separated from your body, one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. And that is exactly what happened. So, so the first came out was Esau, and he was red, and that's what his name, that's what it means. And he was very hairy already then at birth. And then Jacob, and he was holding on to his heel as if he didn't want him to be first. And uh, that prevailed all the, all the way until he got the birthright. Mm. And, of course, uh, Esau be- go- goes on to become the father of another nation called the Moabites. Yeah, the Edomites. The Edomites, sorry, the Edomites. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the Moabites. Yeah, it's fascinating, yeah. Yeah, it is. And, and the, uh, yeah, there was a lot of animosity for for a long time. In fact, it, it seems as David subdued them, King David. He actually did subdue them. But it wasn't until uh, 126 BC, and that's not recorded in Scripture, 
when one of the uh, uh, the Jewish people, uh, John Hertanus, he was one of the uh, rulers there in the intertestament times. He subjected the Edomites even to circumcision. And uh, so he, he, he certainly settled the matter then between them. But um, it's interesting when you look at the, the history, it was a, a very, uh, yeah, shall I say, it was a very uh, uh, history of, of, of quite strong animosity. Mm, indeed. Very strong. Baron, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thanks for being a part of the Faith FM family. Join our community on Facebook or get in touch at 1-800-FAITH-FM.